Yesterday was Christmas. Christmas time, we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, which we believe occurred about 4 BC, so more than 2,000 years ago. And Jesus promised that he would come back, but he hasn't come yet. It's been more than 2,000 years. Let's look at our scripture text for today. Scripture text is Revelation 14, 15. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So our question today is, why hasn't Jesus come? Why is it that it's been 2,000 years and he's still not here yet? Well, we have the answer in the book of Evangelism, page 694. The long night of gloom is trying, but the morning is deferred in mercy because if the master should come, so many would be found unready. God's willing, unwillingness to have his people perish has been the reason of so long delay. He doesn't want us to be lost, and that's why he is waiting he could have become, he could have come before now. In Selected Messages, Book 1, page 82, had the purpose of God been carried out by his people in giving the message of mercy to the world, Christ would have come to the earth. And the saints would, ere this, have received their welcome into the city of God. That was written in 1898, 122 years ago. Christophic Lessons, page 405, tells us. Christ with his disciples is seated upon the Mount of Olives. The sun is set behind the mountains, and the heavens are curtained with the shades of evening. In full view is a dwelling house, lighted up brilliantly as if for some festive scene. The light streams from the openings, and an expectant company wait around, indicating a marriage procession is soon to appear. In many parts of the East, wedding festivities are held in the evening. The bridegroom goes forth to meet his bride and bring her to his home. By torchlight, the bridal party proceed from her father's house to his own, where a feast is provided for the invited guests. In the scene upon which Christ looks, a company are awaiting the appearance of the bridal party, intending to join the procession. As Christ sat looking upon the party that waited for the bridegroom, he told his disciples, the story of the ten virgins, by their experience illustrating this experience of the church that shall live just before his second coming. That's us in our time that he's talking about. We hear this, we see this recorded in Matthew chapter 25, and you're welcome to uh, turn to that. Either turn to that in physical books or your cell phone Bible app. Matthew 25, we'll look at starting at verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. The book Christophic Lessons, page 406, describes this. 
The two classes of watchers represent the two classes who profess to be waiting for their Lord. They are called virgins because they profess a pure faith. By the lamps is represented the word of God. The oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And continuing on 4.12, the ten virgins are watching in the evening of this earth's history. That's the time we're living in now. All claim to be Christians. All have a call, a name, a lamp, and all profess to be doing God's service. All apparently wait for Christ's appearing, but five are unready. Five will be found surprised, dismayed, outside the banquet hall. They have lamps. We have the Bible. There is an expectation of coming. They believe in the Advent. You could even call them Adventists. The wise ones have the Holy Spirit. The foolish do not and are unconverted. Christ's Abba Colossians, page 408, tells us, in the parable, all the ten virgins went, um, went out to meet the bridegroom. All had lamps and vessels for oil. For a time, there was seen no difference between them. So with the church that lives just before Christ's second coming. All have a knowledge of the scriptures. All have heard the message of Christ's near approach and confidently expect his appearing. But as in the parable, so it is now. A time of waiting intervenes. Faith is tried, and when the cry is heard, Behold, the bridegroom, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Many are unready. They have no oil in their vessels with their lamps. They are destitute of the Holy Spirit. Without the Spirit of God, a knowledge of his word is of no avail. The theory of truth unaccompanied by the Holy Spirit, cannot quicken the soul or sanctify the heart. One may be familiar with the commands and promises of the Bible, but unless the Spirit of God sets the truth home, the character will not be transformed. And page 411, the class represented by the foolish virgins are not hypocrites. They have a regard for the truth. They have advocated the truth. They are attracted to those who believe the truth, but they have not yielded themselves to the Holy Spirit working. They have not fallen upon the rock Christ Jesus and permitted their old nature to be broken up. The Spirit works upon man's heart according to his desire and consent, implanting in him a new nature. But the class represented by the foolish virgins have been content with a superficial work. They do not know God. And we see this as we read further in Matthew 25, verses 11 and 12. Afterward, afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. But the subject of today's message is about the delay. In Matthew 25, 5, it says, While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. But the word tarried here actually means to be delayed. And in fact, the New King James Version has a better translation, as we see here. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered 
and slept. How is Christ delayed? We are delaying him. But you might ask, doesn't the Bible say something about it will come at the appointed time and will not tarry? Doesn't the Father, as Jesus said, know the time of his appearing, the specific time, and at that time Christ will come regardless? But here in the verse we see that he is delayed and therefore tarries. Let's look at that verse about the appointed time um, and a delay. It's found in Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. So here it is the vision that will not tarry, not Christ's second coming. We actually know from the Bible that our actions can affect the timing of Christ's return because we see it in 2 Peter 3, verses 11 and 12. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? How do we hasten Christ's coming? Well, it's found in Desire of Ages, page 633. By giving the gospel to the world, it is in our power to hasten the Lord's return, our Lord's return. And Testimonies for the Church, volume 8, page 22 says, It is the privilege of every Christian not only to look for, but to hasten the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're all who profess his name, bearing fruit to his glory, how quickly the whole world would be sown with the seed of the gospel. Quickly the last harvest would be ripened and Christ would come to gather the precious grain. James 5, 7 and 8 describes it this way. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. The husbandman here in the verse is Jesus. And he is waiting for the fruit to develop and ripen. Now, development of the grain requires the early rain, which started at Pentecost. And it also requires ripening with the latter rain, which happens just before Jesus comes. We see this described in Mark Chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. For the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head. Um, after that, the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, he, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Immediately means without further delay. Ripe grain means that the latter rain has been outpoured and there will be a fully ripened harvest when Jesus comes. Revelation 14, 15 tells us, and another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat in the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap for the time has come for you to reap for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Christ is waiting for his harvest 
to be ripe, and then he will immediately come. But the harvest is not ripe because the latter rain hasn't yet come. Why has the latter rain been delayed? We find this in Jeremiah 3, verses 1 through 3. God is talking to his people here and says, You have played the harlot with many lovers, yet return to me, says the Lord. You have polluted the land with your harlot trees and your wickedness. Therefore, the showers have been withheld, and there has been no latter rain. You have had a harlot's forehead. You refuse to be ashamed. When Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, they lost the covering of light that had covered them before. They realized that they were naked, and because they were naked, they were ashamed and hid. But here in this verse, God's people are naked, and yet they refuse to be ashamed. Revelation 3 describes the shame of nakedness as it describes the Laodicean church, of which we are a part. In Revelation 3.17, Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So the fruit cannot ripen if showers are withheld because of harlotry with the world. Our worldliness is preventing the latter rain from being poured out. The book Evangelism, page 694, tells us, I know that if the people of God had preserved a living connection with him, if they had obeyed his word, they would today be in the heavenly Canaan. And Evangelism, page 695, had Adventists, after the great disappointment in 1844, held fast their faith and followed on unitedly in the opening providence of God, receiving the message of the third angel and in the power of the Holy Spirit, proclaiming it to the world, they would have seen the salvation of God. The Lord would have wrought mightily in their efforts, and the work would have been completed, and Christ would have come ere this to receive his people to their reward. But in the period of doubt and uncertainty that followed the disappointment, many of the Advent believers yielded their faith. Thus the work was hindered, and the world was left in darkness. Had the whole Adventist body united upon the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus, how widely different would have been our history. Christ could already have come. By our actions, we can delay his coming, and by our actions, we can hasten his coming. Evangelism, page 696, tells us, For 40 years did unbelief, murmuring, and rebellion shut out ancient Israel from the land of Canaan. The same sins have delayed the entrance of modern Israel, that's us, into the heavenly Canaan. In neither case were the promises of God at fault. It is the unbelief, the worldliness, unconsecration, and strife among the Lord's professed people that have kept us in this world of sin and sorrow so many years. The same sins as Israel. What were those sins? Unbelief, worldliness, unconsecration, and strife. Do we see unbelief? Anywhere in the Adventist church today? You might have heard of a biology teacher at some Adventist college that might be teaching evolution as a factual story of origins, and that's certainly a problem. 
But there's an even greater problem of unbelief in the church today than that. Today, if you hear anyone mention the word obedience, this is quickly dismissed as legalism. You can't stop sinning, they say. So why try? The children of Israel had to wander 40 years in the wilderness and died there because they didn't believe that God could give them the promised victory. And some people in the church today are claiming that God can't give us the victory over sin that he has promised us. What about worldliness? Do we fit easily into the culture around us? Or do we stand out in contrast? Some people accept unbiblical things from the culture around us, and then they try to force the church to accept those same unbiblical things as well. One example is the LGBTQ movement. I heard a sermon recently by a pastor of a large church. He said that we should accept into membership and even into leadership people who cling to the identity of being gay or transgender as long as they remain celibate. But we can't take our identity from our temptations. I can't say to you, I'm a murderer, and I'll always be. It's just my identity. But don't worry, I'm a non-practicing murderer. Ignore this machete that's hanging on my belt because I'm non-practicing. I can't tell my wife, I'm an adulterer. It's just the way God made me. Um, but don't worry, I'm, I'm, non, I'm non-practicing adulterer. She wouldn't put up with that. And the church can't put up with that either. We cannot be, we cannot uh, identify with our temptations. It, when we become Christians, we become a new creation. And we no longer identify with the man of sin. What about the sin of unconsecration? Consecration is defined as the action of making something sacred. Are we consecrated to Christ? Are we allowing him to make us sacred, to make us holy? What about strife? Do we ever see strife in the church? I think all we have to do is come to a board meeting sometime at most churches and you can see strife as people argue. The unbelieving generation died in the wilderness and never saw the promised land. But we can actually take hope from the fact that the surviving generation included not only the youth, but also the elderly who were faithful. Caleb and Joshua were examples of elderly people that were still preserved to go into Canaan. Everyone who was faithful was preserved. But as in the case of Noah and the flood, sometimes the faithful are few in number. But everyone who is faithful can be included in the generation that goes forward. They don't have to die in the wilderness before Jesus comes. But we also need to be careful in this, that we allow Jesus to make the decision of when we're laid to rest. We had a couple in the Colorado Springs South Church who got COVID when the first wave hit. We prayed for them. She was in the hospital for many weeks, seven or eight weeks, I think. Turns out that she recovered and came home to us. I had an aunt who succumbed to COVID-19 in the last few months. She was in an assisted living facility. 
they got hard hit in those assisted living facilities. I had an elderly friend of mine in New Hampshire die just a few weeks ago. Someone I would know had known for many, many years. And we know that God can heal, but sometimes he chooses not to heal. And we should be willing to accept that if that happens. Councils on Health, page 375, warns us, it is not always safe to ask for unconditional healing. He knows whether or not those for whom petitions are offered would be able to endure the trial and test that would come upon them if they lived. He knows the end from the beginning. Many will be laid away to sleep before the fiery ordeal of the time of trouble shall come upon our world. And if the Lord does choose to lay you or a friend to rest, we're told that just before Jesus' second coming, there is a special resurrection before the general resurrection. In early writings, page 285, we hear, we read, uh, there was a mighty earthquake. The graves were opened. And those who had died in faith under the third angel's message, keeping the Sabbath, came forth from their dusty beds, glorified to hear the covenant of grace, of peace that God was to make with those who had kept his law. So do you, or your friend, have faith in the third angel's message? Do you keep the Sabbath? Then you qualify for this group. But let's take a step back and look at what Jesus is trying to do for us in our lives today. Christ's Sabbath Lessons, page 67, tells us, The object of the husbandman, Jesus, is the, in the sowing of the seed and the culture of the growing plant is the production of grain. He desires bread for the hungry and seed for future harvests. So the divine husbandman looks for a harvest as the reward of his labor and sacrifice. Christ is seeking to reproduce himself in the hearts of men. And he does this through those who believe in him. The object of the Christian life is fruit-bearing, the reproduction of Christ's character in the believer that it may be reproduced in others. The goal is not just a poor reflection like the moon reflecting the sun. The goal is to exactly reproduce like a clone, like an identical twin, Christ's character in us. But if you do not believe that Christ has the power to reproduce his character in you, then it will not happen. Fruit-bearing is to produce Christ's character in us so we can induce the same in others by our influence. This is not just to produce more church members, but to produce disciples who also are like Jesus. And not just that we stop doing things that are bad, but like Jesus, we start doing all of the good things that we should be doing as well. Christ's Object Lessons, page 67, continues. There can be no growth or fruitfulness in the life that is centered in self. If you have accepted Christ as a personal savior, you are to forget yourself and try to help others. Talk of the love of Christ. Tell of his goodness. Do every duty that presents itself. Carry the burden of souls upon your heart. And by every means in your power, seek to save the lost. As you receive the Spirit of Christ. And what is that? What is the Spirit of Christ? The Spirit of unselfish love and labor for others. 
you will grow and bring forth fruit. The graces of the Spirit will ripen in your character. Your faith will increase, your convictions deepen, your love be made perfect more and more. You will reflect the likeness of Christ in all that is pure, noble, and lovely. So the Spirit of Christ is unselfish service to others. That's described in Galatians. And uh, we see that quoted in Christ's Office Lessons, page 68. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. This fruit can never perish, but will produce after its kind a harvest unto eternal life. So the last generation of Adventists living on the earth will manifest all of these fruits of the Spirit. And we need all of these fruits. We can't be sad Venists that are gloomy all the time. We can't be mad Venists that are mad all the time, angry. We can't be bad Venists who behave badly. We can't be fad Venists following all the latest trends and the latest wind of doctrine. And we can't be tad Venists just a little bit religious, but not fully committed. No. It's time to stop making excuses. Stop lacking faith that God can finish the work that he started in us. If we showed Christ's character to the world, they would want to join us, but we often imitate the world. If we're not loving, why would they want what we have? We have the truth, but does the truth live in our hearts and live out in our lives? Why has Jesus come? Why has Jesus not come? God is waiting on us. He's not waiting on the Pope to influence the Sunday law. He's not waiting on schemes by the Jesuits to pass those laws in Congress. He's not waiting for conspiracy theories. Sunday laws will be a reaction to the example of God's people whose who are perfectly reflecting God's character in their lives, they will identify Babylon, point out that it has fallen, and be calling people out of Babylon, that's when Sunday laws will occur. Great Controversy, page 48, tells us, the Apostle Paul declares that all that live that will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's from 2 Timothy 3.12. Why is it then that persecution seems, in a great degree, to slumber. The only reason is that the church has conformed to the world's standard and therefore awakens no opposition. The religion which is current in our day is not of the pure and holy character that marked the Christian faith in the days of Christ and his as apostles. It is only because of the spirit of compromise with sin, because the great truths of the word of God are so indifferently regarded because there is so little vital godliness in the church that Christianity is apparently so popular with the world. Let there be a revival of the faith and power of the early church, and the spirit of persecution will be revived, and the fires of persecution will be rekindled. And that's when the Sunday laws will come. We know that the human race has been declining over the past 6,000 years. But Christ plans to take humanity 
at its lowest, at its weakest point, and prove that he is able to reproduce his character again in us. Christ's Topic Lessons, page 69, says, When the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle, because the harvest is come. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. Why does Jesus wait? Why hasn't he come? He is waiting for a generation that will reflect his character, and then he will come to claim them as his own. Christ is waiting for us. Do you want Christ to reproduce his character in you so that he can come and claim you as his own? If you are, would you raise your hand with me today? Amen. Let's bow our heads for our closing prayer. Father in heaven, we love you. Please help us to believe that you are capable of doing in us what you have promised. Give us the faith and courage to move forward and allow you to use your power to sanctify our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.